This is episode number 241, How Do You Normalize Something, with Casey Berman and Scott Mason. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to our weekly conversation called Survive to Thrive Attitude of Gratitude. What this is, is a series of conversations that take place every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, where we explore the connection between gratitude and grief, gratitude and resilience, gratitude and potential, and many other topics. If this is of interest to you, please visit our website at overcomingodds.today, where you'll be able to find the latest detail about our upcoming conversation. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our work, and that is, if our work has had any form of impact in your life, if this has helped you see your world differently, please consider making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today, or submit a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google, so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. There they are. You know, StreamYard does this thing sometimes when I add people in. It sometimes like keeps the person muted and then other times it doesn't. And so like whatever noise or whatever the person is saying, it comes through and I'm still yet to understand. Maybe yes. that's part of the normalization we've got to be able to do. <laughs> yes. I, I open my, he's saying, I open my big mouth. The show wasn't ready for it. I should have just been muted. I'll learn for next time. Sometimes it's best not to normalize things. That's something I won't normalize. Thank you for that's your patience great. with me. That I love true. it. I mean, I guess that's what keeps it authentic and, and transparent and real. If we really get to the point of it, it's just that's what it is. And I think as much as personally for me, I try and control the environment. There are just certain things that happen the way that they do. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's no there's no other way around it. But I'm glad that we're all, all three of us are able to be here and then have this conversation around what it means to normalize something and what the process of that looks like. I'll share a brief story in addition to the one that I just shared with the two of you and everyone else that's joining. Laura Staley has joined us here. The thing that I wanted to explore, talk about expectations, um, is I wanted to explore this connection, which I believe there is a connection between normalizing certain things and traumatic or adverse circumstances, or even elements of identity. So for me, however many years ago by now, one of the things that I started to realize was one of the ways that I was able to work through some of the elements of my past trauma or adverse circumstances was by choosing to start a conversation and therefore normalize the event as not something that only happened to me, and it's not something that um, I didn't feel comfortable talking about. And so creating that space with other people and having the conversations around elements of my past 
as well as how I'm moving forward within the future from that past actually helped me tremendously. And that's why I think this topic of normalizing certain things, in my opinion, actually has a big impact or can have a big impact in one's life. But before we get into kind of the the core question around this and how do you normalize something, considering that I have two former lawyers in the room, let's let's first define what does it actually mean to normalize and what does normalizing mean to you? We've taught him well, Scott. We've taught him well. <laughs> well. We'll give him an honorary degree after a few years. And, and Scott, I want I want to hear your answer. I think the the reason I think that's I was going to say the same thing, Oleg, and I'm really happy you did, is because a lot of words get thrown around uh, in in the world that we don't define, and you don't need to spend hours going down what this means and what is 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 right. But I, I do think it's very important to to get a handle on what trauma is, what normalizing is, is it a verb? Is it a noun? If so, what type? Right. And, and I think that's, that's, I'm, I'm really happy you did that. So. Scott, how do you look at it? You have the hard work, Scott. We tend, we, there I go with the naughty words again, potty mouth Mason saying words like we, Human beings tend to want to categorize and differentiate what is acceptable, what is not, what puts you inside a group, what puts you outside of that group. I am by no means an expert on this, but I have read that this was that there were a number of different evolutionary reasons for this. They it, included being able to identify threats and not probably most dominantly. And so one of the ways, if we could not distinguish each other from, you know, just as a matter of, of tribal identity based on looks alone, the behaviors, attitudes, customs, ideas that are embodied within a particular cultural group or within a particular tribe would serve as heuristics, enabling any individual within either of the groups to figure out who was in and not, and therefore who was a threat and not. Normalization, I therefore would assume, at least initially emerged out of that survival imperative. Mm -hmm as a way to say, this is normal, this is abnormal. Once you push those that are abnormal outside of your tribe, then you're able to treat them in a way that you would not, you're basically able to dehumanize them and able to treat them in a way that you might not treat those that are within your own family, within your own genetic line. That happens also then within a culture. In order for a culture to maintain its stability and its unity, particularly in the times of early humanity when our lives, our lives, our existences were far more fragile and much more easily destroyed, having that cohesion presumably went up and up and up as a as an imperative. And when you have that imperative, making sure that that 
that that um, community is cohesive would make the difference between a community that might survive and not. And so identifying things as abnormal would not only differentiate that culture from other cultures, but it would place those that are a threat or at least a perceived threat to the cohesion of the community in the same category as people from other tribes. The process of normalizing something then, I would imagine, would relate to the process by which new ideas or ideas that were not already deemed to be cultural markers gradually became memes that yeah. took over the dominant culture's self-perception. Did you ever experience that threat in your life, Scott? A threat on your, own, on your own identity? Oh, to my own identity. I would mm -hmm. say I experienced being a threat to a culture's identity, and that's why I just said being gay does mm -hmm. that. Because mm -hmm. it's historically, not in every single culture, but in the culture that I grew up in was deemed as something that was abnormal based on biblical prohibitions that, by the way, were written for a completely different time and different era and different set of circumstances and were ambiguous anyway. Have I ever felt as though something threatened my normality? I'll talk about something that I experienced recently that was a threat to my normality and it stuck with me. And I want to hear you all's thoughts as to my explanation as to this. Mm -hmm. I live near Central Park in New York City. And I like to go, as you both know, and as some who regularly watch the show would know, I like to go for an hour long walk every day. And sometimes it is through the park. And sometimes because Central Park has gotten much more safe in the past three decades or so, I will go on that walk through Central Park. And there's a forest area in there called the Rambles. And one day as I was crossing the bridge to get into that forest area, I saw a still stiff humanoid figure in the pathway in the forest in the dark with just a few street lights above it. They have street lights in, or street lamps in the middle of uh, Central Park to give it some light for those who don't know. And it was a humanoid figure, but without a head. And I could just see the shadow. And I stopped... And I felt very nervous, but I, I also was transfixed. I couldn't run. And then suddenly, as I, I decided, I'll walk a little closer and see what this is. Mm -hmm. And then I realized it was a man who was hunched over, so I couldn't see his head. And he lifted his head, and he had on a jacket, and he spread his jacket out. And then all of a sudden, at his feet, a whole raft of rats spread out and disappeared into the forest. And then he ran into one of the paths into the forest too. That to me was not normal. <laughs> it was, and it, I was threatened. So why was, was it I was wondering what the punchline was. <laughs> <laughs> it was very abnormal. My sense of personal normalcy was threatened and my sense of what was normal in Central Park at any time, day or night, was profoundly threatened. Because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what was going on. And any human being that has a bunch of rats at their feet is also, to me, frightening. Because I'm frightened by rats. I'm threatened by them. I don't want them in my orbit anywhere. And so that was an example of what you're talking about. Now, thinking about it later, there were explanations for this that, although I would say probably put that individual outside of the realm of normal, are reasons that I could develop compassion for. So what we do 
with things that are not normal is a different story mm -hmm. than just assessing whether they're quote unquote normal or not. I will never claim that what I observed was normal. I However, was going to ask yeah. whether or not that was even a true story or if that was, you know, a scene from Harry Potter or one of the other fantasy books, yeah. but it's a hundred percent true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Casey. Well, no, interesting. You, the, the background is really helpful on, on normal going back to, back to our ancestors. And, and I think that's a hundred percent true. I view normal as, you know, when you normalize something, you're taking something that's out of the realm of standard, of recognized, of expected, and either it's being forced onto you and it's in your realm now and you have to live with it, so you better make it normal, or it's something you want to bring in. And it could be beneficial. I'm not going to say good or bad. It could be beneficial or not beneficial to you. So, uh, um, but that's how I define to normalize something. And so you can normalize eating healthy. If you, if you haven't done it in the past, you mm -hmm. can, you can make that something. The word habit would come up, right? A habit is really a way of normalizing something that, um, that was not normal or expected or every day or a standard in your life before the, I think where we want to go is for the things that aren't beneficial to you when we understand how we normalize things uh, subconsciously, this is where, where I go. And uh, the example for me that came up when I was thinking about this topic, again, easy question, Oleg, thank you, huh. was when I was, I'm doing the math, when I was about seven or eight, uh, my home here, my, that I grew up in in San Francisco here was burglarized. And it's, it's kind of a crazy story. Obviously, it's, it's 40 years later, and it's still with me. I think about it a lot um, or subconsciously feel it. And the thing was not only was that a violation, but long story, but I actually, they locked the door from the inside. We didn't really know what was going on. We thought the door was just jammed. My dad propped me up through a window to get in, and I had to walk around to open the door to let my family in. And as I'm in the house, um, the robbers were still in the house. We didn't know this. They ran down the back stores, stairs, ran off into the garden. We, you know, here in San Francisco in Noe Valley neighborhood, if anyone knows it. So, I mean, like, imagine hearing that and, you know, so traumatic, right? When I know we'll get into, into trauma. And so for me, I think I've normalized um, this idea of, of a threat. And, you know, I check locks. I, I thought it was just OCD, but I think it's this subconscious and this is something I've worked on where I check my car locks five times. I, I check the home locks, um, an alarm. I'm not totally crazy about it, even though I think my wife and kids would be. For example, last night I fell asleep early. My wife went to pick up my daughter and she didn't turn the alarm on. There was a lock on the door. She, she locked one lock. She didn't lock the other. And I wake up this morning going, how can you not do that? Like, what do you, you know, so out of my normal, right? So that's just a little example in my life that I have normalized this idea of, I don't want to say constant threat because I'm not, you know, peeking out the window in the blinds. I'm not like that level, but there is this low lying subconscious tension I have. Um, I've had my car broken into, which is just a normal course of being here in San Francisco, unfortunately, but that didn't help. Right. So that's something I've normalized. I have normalized this idea of of gates of of so on. 
Um, for example, many years, I uh, my house then was was attached on both sides, and our house now in San Francisco, where I live with my wife and kids, is detached. And that threw me for a loop. Like, wait a minute, there's space in between. Like, <laughs> someone could climb over, and you know, all that sort of stuff. Now, we on our hill here in San Francisco, we have coyotes. Coyotes came into our backyard. I'm not that concerned. <laughs> like, go figure, right? Like, and and we, my uh, my dog and I, we jog every day. I was jogging last night. There were three coyotes on the on the street that we ran into. We made noises and they ran away. So just show you, like, yeah, I don't want to be attacked, by them, but I'm not that concerned about coyotes in my backyard. But I'm also reliving something for 40 years ago as I check my my door eight times before I can leave. So I've normalized. That within my bounds, it is expected, accepted, just how you do things to check your front door 18 times before you leave somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not like that's not healthy. It's not beneficial for me, but I've normalized it. Do you believe that there is or not believe, but what role do you think conversation plays in being able to normalize or even transform a particular traumatic experience such as the one that you've experienced and then the one that you were talking about, Scott, what role do you think conversation plays in that? That's a great question. And conversation can be speaking. It can be journaling Mm -hmm. in the morning. This is something I've done about the burglary in the past few years. Uh, Ideally, I would have done it right afterwards, but doing therapy on a eight-year-old in 1980, like, no, you just didn't do that back then, right? So, um, so, so we we just didn't. I should have done it, and and I just repressed it. But as I'm talking about it here, as I'm talking about my family, as I've have I've been doing therapy and the conversation, as you said, on this event, it's it's still there, but it's reduced. Mm-hmm. I I'm not so concerned. I've definitely had that tension. I can feel. I've bubbled it up to a top to the top. Um, and I've, as my business partner, Adam Olette at Leave Law Behind always says, I shine a light on it. I put it under the microscope. I'm actually looking at my fear. And that's what most of us don't do is we don't look at the fear. And what's ironic is we normalize it kind of subconsciously. This mm-hmm. is just what you do. You just check your door 18 times before you leave. Um, but you don't shine a light on it. So it sort of automates you day to day. And you're not even looking at it. So when you do look at it, shine a light on it, um, you look at the fear and you go, really? That's what I'm afraid of? And I've even gone and had compassion for the burglars. Well, we never know. I I don't know who these people are. My dad chased them. The cops came. They found someone. My dad couldn't identify them. The whole joke also is they were trying to steal my dad's clothes. They had his clothes all over (laughs) the life. They came in here to steal your clothes. So we made light of it. But I but I think the the conversation is shining the light on it has helped me. And I've I've got more work to do. I think that's um, but that's how you face your fear. And I think also when you think of it on a nationwide, whether it's sexism, whether it's racism, a nationwide conversation, they always say, right? We need to shine light on these. But we do, because at the end of the day, we're gonna say, Really? I'm gonna do all of this because of the color of someone's skin. I'm going to do all of this because who they choose to love. I mean, and you really kind of look at it like we're putting all of this effort in because of someone's gender. Well, it's the same thing with me. Like I'm putting all this effort in because something happened. I actually flipped it and I started having compassion for them. I mean, think about the desperate state state these two people, these two people had to be in to break into our house. Yeah. 
there was our neighbors had a big Doberman pincher who to the to, who was bark was threatening. I was scared so of the dog. I don't know how these guys got past you know the Doberman and the barking. Um, but the desperate state they were in to have to do this and to threaten going to jail for this to steal my dad's clothes, right? So I actually started having compassion on them and saying. And, and flipping it. And so anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. But but that's something I've normalized. Um, and then I don't want it to be normal anymore, that feeling. And so I recently, no, I'm, I've just started. I'm recently shining a light on it. Your point, conversation, Oleg. And and really um, just, just, I don't want it to be that big boogeyman anymore. Mm-hmm. It's killing me. Scott? I have a question for you, Oleg. Are you mm-hmm. asking this question with regards to our internal sense of normalcy or socially? I guess it could be either one. The reason why I asked that is because I've genuinely been curious when it comes to the conversations around some of the traumatic or adverse circumstances that many of us have been through in life. One of the things that I noticed, so I have a fear of spiders. I don't know where it came from, but I've been fearful of spiders for 20 years, maybe even longer than that. And one of the things that you pointed out, Casey, which I think is a very valid point or something for me to do, and that's to actually break it down. Next time I see a spider, why is it that I'm afraid of it? Am I afraid of a spider because of the fact that it just looks different for me? Am I afraid of the spider because I've seen it in movies do X, Y, and Z, but in reality, it's not always the same. So I think there's something about it. And that's why I was curious to hear from the two of you, as well as your perspective, Scott, like what does that process look like? And beyond the conversation, is a conversation enough? Or what's the next thing that you choose to take within your life? You know, we're, we're talking about, many of the different topics that are happening within today's day and age around gender, around people's ethnicity and all these other things. And I get curious as far as what's the next step and what is the shared responsibility that people might carry? So in Casey's point, when he was burglarized, yes, I may not have experienced the same thing, but do I have a role in his journey? And, and what is that role? Is it creating a space for him to be heard? That's why I was asking, like, what role does a conversation play in your life and, and helping you transform those circumstances if that's something that you're looking for? Or is there something beyond that? You know, is there an additional layer of acceptance that you have to go through as an individual that can help you transform and get to the next next stage of it all? Thank you so much for that. Part of why I was asking the question, and you really took it to another level there, Oleg, was thinking about to what extent a trauma related to something that we viewed as abnormal Mm -hmm. was something that people either just didn't talk about because it was so ordinary yeah, or if, or if a conversation occurred and everyone said, Oh, that happens all the time. So for instance, if Casey had snuck into his house through that window and the burglars had run away. And then when he talked to his mother and father about it, they had said, Oh, it's just like those coyotes outside. It happens all the time. Don't freak out. That conversation may have normalized it for Casey or it might not have. 
and who the conversation that you have with about the normalization therefore might and i say that might with a big question mark behind it mm-hmm. impact whether it is normalized or not because the other thing that yeah. occurs to me is it could be that casey has an has an extreme fear of coyotes much like your fear of spiders oleg and even though everyone sees coyotes and they know coyotes won't hurt them and coyotes are everywhere he goes every they're even in the shopping mall they're even in the food court ordering or yeah. ordering sushi he still is afraid of them and cannot cannot accept them as a normal part of his existence, or he refuses to believe that they are a normal part of the existence, even though the external conversations about them either presume their normalcy or uh, assertively say they're normal. It goes as to, Casey, you were talking about some of the isms that are dominating the social discourse right now. And I'll be really candid with you when it comes to an issue that speaks to me nearly and dearly, being gay. Is it something that people will ever truly feel is normal inside? Do they all pretend that it's normal because that's what we as a culture have decided to do? But inside, every single person who's pretending on the outside that it's normal is secretly inside saying, that's not normal. Yeah. That's weird. We don't know that. And so who's normal and how is normal expressed and to what extent discussion or discussion impacts or doesn't impact normalcy at all are big mysteries to me. All of the discussion in the world about people's sexual orientation being normal could make it appear to be totally normal, but every single person, like I just said, could be thinking inside, it's not normal. Yeah. And you and you see it, so a few things there. One, you see it in, in what we say straight and gay, straight and queer, right? And so queer is, is I mean, the word queer is abnormal. <laughs> straight is the straight and narrow, right? So, I mean, it's in the words that we say. I know as someone who's born and raised here in San Francisco, uh, I was born in the Castro, moved to Noe Valley when I was four. And my mom remembers walking into Harvey Milk's camera shop before he was even a supervisor. You know, so for gay people, for me growing up, totally normal. I mean, just growing up, right? Like that being said, there were other ethnicities and nationalities I didn't really grow up with. And so not that they weren't normal, but it I I encountered people of this nationality or ethnicity later on and had to get to know them. There's there's nothing wrong necessarily with something not being normal right um i i when when it goes into the basics that we have around human rights and compassion like it's one thing if you haven't met gay people and have never lived around uh uh, gay people or lgbtq plus and all of that of course that's not gonna be normal for you what I would want to be normal is compassion, acceptance, openness. I think that's where we get a lot of the, the rancor, um, which we can touch on. What I want to touch on point to you, Scott Mason, which I think was extremely insightful and eloquent, was the point of if my parents had said afterwards, ideally, no one's going to do this. But like, hey, Casey, burglaries happen all the time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. What's funny, because my 
before, I have a daughter and a son and my son is our second, but in between, before we, we had my son, my wife had a miscarriage and that was just like devastating to parents. Right. And, but then I was walking with someone and we're talking and, you know, I was just feeling it. And my wife is at home crying and, you know, it was a tough few weeks, month or so we're sitting here and, and you don't tell people that in today in America, you don't say those words, but I opened up to him. It's like, yeah, man, you know, he's how are you? I was like, you really want to know, you know, what? had a had a miscarriage and we're kind of, and he's like, oh man, that happens all the time. Don't, don't worry about it. You'll be back. He's like, yeah, yeah, miscarriage happen all the time. It's not a big deal. I'm not trying to be flippant, but dude, don't worry about it. Like, I understand you're going through pain now. We're out. And, and it, like, I don't think he understood how helpful it was because I walked away going, miscarriages happen all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not our fault. The body just happens. It, we didn't do anything wrong. You know, like my wife wasn't too strenuous in her activity. It wasn't like she lifted her leg too much and that impacted the, like, it wasn't her fault, right? It's not like she should have been in an easy chair for nine months and never moved, right? So it just opened my eyes, like, right. So, and it just became normal. Like it happens. Now, a month or two later, we got pregnant again and then we haven't looked back, right? So um, it's interesting you said, Scott, that, in some ways, soon after the event that causes that traumatic response, because trauma is a response, sometimes maybe you just need someone to 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 demystify it. And like, no, no, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not trying to be a schmuck, but like, it's really not that big of a deal. And I think at the right time, that can really um, pull the energy out of the out of the trauma and normalize it in a beneficial way. How do you know if you can open up to someone? I I don't know. You kind of know it when you feel it, when you see it, that that phrase again. But I think to what we were talking about before mm-hmm. when Scott mentioned the meeting, the business meeting he had recently where he just nailed it, I think it comes from internal. So if you're looking at the external person and like looking for signs, that may be very difficult. I think if you just be yourself and everything Hollywood tells us, the Disney movies, just don't worry about what other people think and be your authentic self and obviously be diplomatic and, and do it in a, in a socially accepted way, but just be bold and be courageous. I, I think we are projecting things onto people, i.e. this person doesn't want me to be myself. Mm-hmm. See, I told you, so therefore I'm going to hold back. And I think, you know, Scott told us an example of how he was just his engaging self with with someone who was very senior and connected and the person loved it. Um, and uh, I, I think it's that attitude. It, it really, Scott didn't need to see that person and look for a sign. Oh, now I can be myself. Scott just went in being himself. Mm-hmm. I will say though, thank you so much for that. I appreciate you sharing that story. <laughs> it sounds great. That being said, when I was in high school, I went through a period of, very severe depression. And I would go from class to class. I would do my work or listen to the lecture. And then during the study time and the reading time, which I always got through like that, I would just put my head down and I would sleep or try and escape the world. Mm -hmm. And during a very, very difficult time, there was a woman who was, I was a senior in high school at this point. A woman, who, a young woman came up to me and she saw that I was sad and just sort of 
hiding away in my folded arms. And she touched me on the arm and she said, Scott, you seem like you're sort of sad. Is everything okay? You know, I'm here to, I care about you and I'm here to listen. And so I told her, I said, yeah, I'm just really, I didn't tell her every detail. I said, I'm just really not feeling good. I feel like this, that, and the other. And she said, well, you know, she said, I, I care. Again, she repeated that she cared. And I'm so glad you felt you could unburden with me. I will listen to you. And I'm only a few chairs away. Then she went and sat down a few rows behind me. And then the class bully all of a sudden stood up in the middle of, of the classroom and said, so Scott, you're feeling that. And he repeated back to me everything that I had just told this woman in front of the whole class. And it was, as you can imagine, very embarrassing to have my shit, excuse me, my personal information out on the street suddenly like that. I felt utterly betrayed. And I felt a little bit more cautious after that about opening up to people. And it got me to think, well, maybe I shouldn't, just because someone says something or even acts a certain way, Maybe I should be a little bit more judicious. Learning when and how and what criteria to use in being judicious is an ongoing learning process for me. But I, for one, have never forgotten that lesson. I've had similar experiences, I think, in my high school where I've had encounters with people who are perceived to be bullies, and that's similar things happen to that or it wasn't necessarily in the middle of a classroom but in the hallways or outside of it and that that's a it's an interesting point that you bring up because there's i think there's something within that and that's something you mentioned casey as well to what degree do you choose to take that person's opinion of you and make it a reality for yourself and i don't personally know what that line is i think if anything what i am trying to do is constantly work on and reflect and understand like this is just one person's perspective of how they see me it's not the ultimate reflection of what i feel inside of me yeah for me i wasn't bullied but i for i don't know where i got it maybe from the media or something but i in high school was private i thought it was cool to be private to be the facade just to be cool to be strong um, there was something, I don't know if it was the old Clint Eastwood cowboy movies of just strong, silent type. Not that I was silent, like I was, I was extroverted, but I just, I wouldn't go there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, served the purpose back then, I guess. But at the same time, um, there are people around me, you know, Clint Eastwood's cowboy was in the desert for, for months by himself. Right. So, um, I, it just started out to fit. And then I think it, it, I realized as I got older, that's just what it, it takes time, late twenties, even in, into my, and then into my thirties that a lot of the real successful people, not just yeah. money, but just successful, engaging, connected, organic people who followed, who were leaders, who were strong, were very open and vulnerable. And they didn't really necessarily have their heart on their sleeve where you go, oh God, here they go again. Like they're crying for attention. But if you thought about the people um, I mean, you know, you think of Oprah and her and her challenges with weight. Uh, I'm not a huge Oprah fan. I didn't follow her, but you can help but just see that on a headline here and there. And I'm like, interesting. Like, wow. OK. And you just think of of people who who came out about uh, their struggles or people who, who aren't famous celebrities who I would sit and talk with and they would just be open. And I just shifted and it became 
something where even on business calls where I would talk like yesterday, I was talking about homeschooling with uh, someone on a business call who I don't really know that well. We homeschool our children. They weren't a fit for school. Um, you know, like they're not your normal plain vanilla kid. I mean, who am I to talk about my family with someone I'm doing business with? And I'll tell you, this person just opened up and and she said the same thing. Her kid wasn't wants to go to school and does want to do that. But at the same time, they had troubles with their 14 year old because of blank, blank and blank. And their her troubles are my troubles and vice versa. But we both talked about our not troubles, mm. our challenges. Um, and I just realized that a lot of the success I've had in the past, I think, 15 years has just been for me not trying to be such a success, right? For me not trying to be the silent cowboy and to just open up. Again, I'm not I, I'm not weak. I'm not letting people walk all over me. I'm not being so emotional. I'm not crying on these calls. I mean, there are certain social decorum that we just have to live by. Otherwise, they'll look at you a little bit differently. Like I, there's rules to play by, I get. But I, I just, I'm, I'm sort of pushing it from an honesty and a vulnerability. And I think, Really, the reason why people watch this, Oleg, and what you've put together is you've created an environment where I feel comfortable opening up. I mean, I don't talk about this burglary that much. Scott does, right? So, uh, and, and what Scott's talked about. And so, you know, when you've got that, it's it's sort of when you open up in the same way you're doing here, Oleg, for us, you create that environment where other people open up. And I think then, just to blow this out even more, is like, when, when you when you have it, I mean, the main, to go back to your point, I was just reading about this, is that it's communication. I mean, most wars and everything and 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 issues can be can be resolved with with communication. Um, you know, I, I you know, in the movies where they have a fight and then they slam the door and walk out and you're like, oh, God, please just like. <laughs> Maybe go for a little bit, but like you got to talk it through. Like, where are you going? But they don't, and they get on a plane and they leave and they never get married. And you're like, oh man, come on, guys. So, but it's also the same thing. I mean, you know, it's it's between countries getting them to the tables. Yeah. I mean, I'm Jewish, I have family in Israel, but if the Israelis and Palestinians don't talk to each other, there's not going to be peace. And yeah. one of the big things I think about the Israelis is not many Israelis know Arabic the language. And many Palestinians do know Hebrew because they work there. Israelis don't speak their language and things get lost. So we can save that for another time. But I, but I think that, you know, it really is around dropping that, that veneer, that facade. And it's actually ironically made me stronger and, and more successful in this, this world that we play in. Here's a loaded question for the top of the hour for the two of you. And that is, in knowing what you know now, what do you wish were more normal? Or what is a topic that you wish to normalize within your own life? Something that you're just getting into, something that maybe you haven't even taken the first step? For me, what I would want more normal is this idea around self-development. It's an idea around um, the ego. It's idea around, and we've talked about this, around enlightenment. Everyone knows who Buddha was or the Dalai Lama. They listen to Tony Robbins. They understand the matrix and all that. But I think that if more people really did what um, David R. Hawkins, um, A Course in Miracles, mm -hmm. um, what you've got, um, um, Untethered Soul, 
by Michael Singer, who was on Oprah, you know, people like that. And there's so many, um, uh, Joe Dispenza, uh, you've got uh, Wayne Dyer, people like that who, who've written about this, who, who go back to the sages, to Jesus and, and Thomas Aquinas and, and Buddha and so many other people. Um, it's everywhere in the world. It's written on the, on, on, on the libraries, the old marble buildings. It's in our Hollywood movies. But there's this element of that there's a consciousness that we're not tapping into. Um, there's the reason... I don't I don't want to watch go to CNN or Fox News or where New York Times anymore. It's just all bad news because the ego, it's this framework we live in is all about separation. Mm -hmm. And you could go back to the creation story, right? Adam and Eve and getting banished. And but we humans, the original sin, we feel like there's something wrong with us. And it's the ego. It's the ego at play. Um, and it's not necessarily a Freudian ego. It's sort of this this framework in zero sum game, right? Um, and I think you know what what Buddha really talked about, and I and Zen, and I and I'm such a beginner in it. But I think if we all just kind of saw that this was a game, mm -hmm. if we all just like Neo did, saw the matrix for what it is, ones and zeros, we would we would um, it, it it we would stop fighting. Um, it's just everything you hear on the internet, higher consciousness, more awareness, all these buzzwords, you know, so I'll pause there, but I do wish more people would pay attention to that as opposed to it just being some outliers who, who mean well, or are in the Amazon or Costa Rican forest doing ayahuasca, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's still such a small thing that, um, I think could really help the world. Mm -hmm. Scott. I was utterly wrapped up in that answer and it gave me so much to think about and it was so complex and so rich that I lost exactly what the question was. <laughs> so thank you for that accomplishment. It's very difficult for me to lose a question. I, I pride myself on not doing that. Is it, was it what, what I, yes, please. Ask what is an again. experience that you personally would like to normalize within your own life? <clears throat> I would like to normalize within my own life, and I really strive to do this, to create a space where people can have honest, unvarnished discussions about controversial issues. A lot of them right now relate to politics, economics, social class, identity factors, affinity groups. Rural, rural versus urban, these sorts of things, real honest discussions without fear of judgment about how they're feeling about the alleged differences. We can have discussions within our culture around topics such as race, Sexual orientation, I'll use one again that I'm personally invest in, invested in. Uh, stereotypes concerning educational status or where you live, those sorts of things. We can have those, but they are very constrained. And people, many people, do not feel safe in expressing their honest views. They feel as though they will be punished or socially ostracized for views that are unconventional. Religion is another area like this. And 
that lack of normalization around it being okay to say things that are might be perceived as ignorant or politically incorrect or harsh mm-hmm. really limits the ability of the discussion, in my opinion, to move forward into resolution, as well as it inhibits accountability on the beh- on the behalf of every participant within these conversations, all of the different sides that there are to the to the points that are being discussed. So to normalize a place where all of those conversations can occur, if you feel that being gay is something that is weird and that on a fundamental level bothers you to, for us to be able to have that conversation and you feel safe to express that and explain why, without the response being, you are part of an oppressive class, you're destroying me, I will not take that, or without judging, or I'm going, to, I'm going to deplatform you or turn everyone against you because you feel that way, all of those sorts of things. Or for me to say, I think being gay is great, and to not feel like I'm going to be banished from social discourse or not having any friends or be driven out of my town anymore, either versions of those sorts of things. For those conversations that are tough, raw, and honest to occur would be as a, as a matter of normal courses of human behavior would be something that I would be ecstatic to see normalized. I think we would all benefit from that discussion and the ability and the space to have that discussion. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Scott, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but rather just something that I'm curious about when it comes to what you just mentioned in having a conversation about one's sexual orientation, being gay or whatever other thing that you want you choose to explore. I'm curious to hear from your lens, is a conversation enough or do you always, do you still continue to feel the sense of judgment, rejection, whatever else that you feel as part of it? And therefore, what does that journey look like? Is, is that an individual journey that you got to be able to go on in order to gain true acceptance around that topic or experience? Or is that something that truly has no endpoint? What a phenomenal question. My tendency is to believe that if the conversation occurs and everyone has a space to be honest mm-hmm. and not judge, Whoever is who has whoever has the most compelling case will, as a general matter, ultimately be able to move the person along with them. However, part of the hard work that I believe I need to do as a member of a minority group in that respect is also respect and accept that not everyone is going to be or want. to be what I want them to be or to want what I want or to not judge. There may be feelings of judgment that I get and I may feel judged by those people. That's okay. That's part of life. Part of what I feel I need to do as, and part of my journey as a gay man has been to say, I don't care. You can judge me. 
I would prefer it if you don't. Our relationship will be deeper, more rich, more satisfying, more honest. If you don't judge or if all the better, you embrace me for exactly who and what I am. Regardless of what you thought before, you'll get the pleasure of full me in your face every day. But it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Diversity of thinking is how we as a human race move forward. Also, sometimes there are things that I need to hear and I need to think about that may be legit. Some people may say, I'm uncomfortable, for instance, with you. Their homophobia might be a reflection of things that I'm not ima- I'm not able to imagine. I may be imp- imposing my own narrative onto their thought processes. They may say, and I've had this happen, I am comfortable with you as a gay person. I am not comfortable with gay people or the expression of gay culture or specific gay legal rights because of blah, 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 blah. That's a whole different conversation. And sometimes there are points that I need to contend with. I still may feel that my original position was right, mm-hmm. but some, and I, or I may feel that that person's points were driven by factors that are of limited or no intellectual credibility, but I still have to be able to hear it and think about it. There may be things that I say, actually, you have a point. Mm-hmm. When, you know, to pick up on what, what Scott said is when I, and answer your question, when I think of judgment, judgment is in many ways, and I don't know if people want to hear this, in attack. Mm-hmm. You're going to attack someone. And you're even going to attack yourself when you judge yourself. I should do this. I'm such a loser. You're just attacking yourself. Now, why do we do that? Well, I think primarily because there's really two emotions in life that I've learned, which is, and we've talked about it, fear and love. You're either acting out of fear or you're acting out of love. So to take this one step further, when I think about when someone actually does an action in the world, it's either love or it's a call for love. So if Scott is going to be attacked in in that situation, or if someone's going to do it to me because I'm Jewish or if someone for Af- being African-American or whatever, um, or for having long hair or for, or for being dirty or for being disorganized, whatever it is. But when you think about someone who says, I am, I don't agree with your, with your, you know, homosexual lifestyle, or I like you as a person, but I don't like, you know, gay culture and gen- whatever, however they frame it. Right. I look at them and it's difficult, but I would look at them and say, that's a call for love. They have some fear. They're, they're uncomfortable. They, so to the point about, do we just need to have the conversation? Yeah, there's action and there's things you can do, but you want to have this conversation in order to understand to the point you mentioned in the first minute, Oleg, like, how do we define this? What is really at issue here? What is their issue? And their issue is they're afraid. They're afraid of gay people. Why? Maybe they're gay. Maybe they've had those thoughts, but their their society doesn't let them have it. So they're afraid they're going to it's going to come out. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're heterosexual, but they feel threatened that um, 
you know, gay people are going to just like immigrants are going to take over the world and take off their mm -hmm. job. And, um, you know, yeah, gay people don't have children, so they have more money. So I've, I'm distracted. They're going to buy my house. Who knows where it goes? We've seen it with immigrants. We've seen it with you fill in the blank. Um, but when someone makes a judgment, when I make a judgment on someone else, when I make a judgment on myself, if I'm sort of enlightened there, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm at a little bit of a, of a little higher consciousness, I'll say, what am I doing? I get it. This is a, this is a call for love. Mm -hmm. It's a call for love. Casey is calling out for love because I just judge someone or that person over there, fill in the blank politician who's rattling on about a homosexual and sin is fearful, fearful. He won't get the voters fearful. He, who knows? Right. Mm -hmm. So when I break it down that way, it takes a very complicated thing called life um, and, and gives it a, a, a duality that's actually a helpful duality for me of where is it coming from? And then through that lens, I can either change my behavior or like Scott's saying, walk away. This person's a call for love and I either give them compassion or I just I just don't have the time for it. I was watching a reality show called Big Brother a few mm -hmm. years ago and there was and they set these things up for drama we all know that but there was a man who was from rural oklahoma a very very small town and he and there was and he was grew up in a conservative religious household and there was of course the urban new york city gay guy there and then there were the various other housemates that were of I think all of them were heterosexual, but they were. I from love how you said it. Of course, the mix is predictable, right? Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. totally. <laughs> and at one point, the country "quote unquote" hick asked the gay guy. He said, "Is it true that gay people get together at bars and they all dress up as women <laughs> and the and and act like women?" And the gay guy laughed, and 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 the other housemates to their credit at least in theory rallied around the gay man and they're like that's ridiculous how could you think something so stupid why would you say that you're offending him all of that sort of stuff but i actually thought wait a minute i was grateful that he asked that question yeah he didn't know he didn't understand and he was acknowledging that he didn't know otherwise he wouldn't ask is it offensive for him to think that that all gay men get in bar together in bars and dress up as women well that depends on whether you choose to be offended or not maybe people chose to be offended by that how, you, the, his dare in having that assumption but i wasn't well i was glad also he was honest and 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 i chose to view that as, as someone being curious and attempting to make a connection like you said a cry and, for love and think about a liberal elite from San Francisco or New York talking to someone from Alabama and saying, is it true all you people who listen to country music and wear boots do, you know, have hoedowns or chew tobacco or, or whatever. Right. And he would look at it like I, one, I don't chew tobacco Two, I don't have a pickup truck three. I don't go to hoedowns. I mean like that same, he could be offended or he could say, you cute little San Francisco guy. No, we all don't do hoedowns in the South. And that, and I think it's that conversation and also that compassion because not everyone doesn't know everything about everybody else. And that's okay. And I will say, you know, part of, I mean, we do want to be respectful, but I agree with you, Scott. Like, I like that the, the guy asked the gay guy and just sort of opened up. He wasn't malicious about it. 
Um, but I think there is a tendency, and I don't know if people want to hear this, the woke culture, the cancel culture. And you're talking to a liberal Democrat from San Francisco here, okay? So, but it, it's when our initial default, when what's normal is to be offended, there's something wrong, in my opinion, right? And so, because that doesn't help. If you're on the left and you're on the right and you're pointing fingers and yelling at each other, tell me how that makes any progress. That's not a conversation. So in the same way, the 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 gay person in that show could have been offended by the lack of insight that the person from that the cowboy had. You could flip it as well. There is a culture that the cowboy has that are in other states or in the southeast, whatever you want to call it, that a lot of people who um are from other parts of the country don't get and could easily offend that person by with, with their comments. It really just comes down to all of us uh, understanding that we're all here for love. Even the toughest, most macho country guy compared to the, the most New York, San Francisco gay person or, or elite or sophisticated or whatever, you know, we're all, this is where you get to it. We're all, we're all kind of one here. Hmm. And that's where the ego, the part of that duality, that's where I want people to realize it. I think, Scott, your example of of them, of that gay person not being offended and just the, the character there, just like answering the question, he had a choice. He could easily have been offended and said, like, you, you know, race, you, you, sex, you, whatever, you homophobic guy. How, how dare you say that? Instead, he's like, he, he laughed it off, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that built more understanding and actually built a bridge there as opposed to fighting about it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Two of you, can you tell us a little bit more as we wrap up, where can people hear similar conversations? What are some of the work that you're doing around everything that we've discussed? I'll start with you, Casey. Well, like they, the world needs more of, of these type of forums where people like me and Scott can feel comfortable talking and also where people can can listen. So keep that up. Uh, you can find me at leavelawbehind.com or email me at Casey, C-A-S-E-Y at leavelawbehind.com or I'm connected with Scott and Oleg on LinkedIn. Thank you. Scott? Speakerscott.com because I have been known to talk. I also have a podcast Scott Mason's Purpose Highway at PurposeHighway.com. I'd love to see, hear, talk to any of you through any of that. And as Casey said, you're normalizing a lot of amazing conversations, lens changes, and perspective shifts, Oleg. Keep up what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you to the two of you for, for making this possible and for everyone else that chooses to tune in, share their insights and perspectives. I just... I think that the three of us do start the conversation, but it's that perspectives and other people's insights that really make the difference. So for anyone that's listening, thank you. And as I mentioned earlier, if this has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our work by making a contribution through our website. And outside of that, just really grateful to you, Scott, and to you, Casey, for helping me see differently in situations where I'm not able to. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider supporting our work 
by making a donation at overcomingodds.today or submitting a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next time.